Hi, welcome to the latest Culture Hacker podcast. My name's Shane Green, and I'm going to be your host for today. We've got a couple of great guests coming online. I've got Michael Bungay-Stanier. He is the founder of A Box of Crowns and also the best-selling author of A Coaching Habit. We're going to get into this whole thing about how to have great coaching conversations and why they are so important to your organization's culture. Then I've got Mark Sawyer coming in. He's the founder of Bonfire, a social media platform that is really helping organizations drive engagement, build better relationships, and pretty much support a healthy culture. It's all about having great communication. So this week, I think we've got a really strong theme of effective communication and healthy conversations, which is kind of timely because this week I was hosting a workshop and I have a couple of thoughts for you. The workshop I was hosting was on the whole idea of conflict management. And I think it's important to understand that when when you come to this idea of conflict, it's natural and as an important and it's critical to organizations because it fosters things like creativity, innovation, growth, transparency, you know, all those really good things you want. But so many times it's got this negative connotation to it. Many managers just don't want to deal with it. Why? Because they see it about getting too personal, it gets emotional, it takes time. And let's face it, sometimes it can be a little uncomfortable. So across the board, we have managers and organizations today that just aren't dealing with conflict. As a result, we see many relationships within the workplace merely just coexist. Pretty much the worst thing that can happen between two people. They tolerate each other, they maintain, and even in some instances, they're actually creating these workarounds just to avoid the interaction with certain people. And you see, the managers have allowed this to happen because they're not communicating effectively. They're not requiring others to communicate effectively. And in short, we're not having the type of tough conversations that need to be had to ensure that the morale and culture of your company is strong. Now listen, I was talking to a lot of managers in the workshop this week and they kept saying they don't have time to communicate effectively, have tough conversations, and that's just total BS. Because you see, when you think about it, they may not have time to have a great conversation, yet they're willing to invest time in all this rework as a result of misunderstandings. They're uh, willing to deal with all the poor morale issues going on because someone's causing havoc with the other uh, people on their team. And they've got all these workaround processes which are just becoming ineffective. So this whole excuse of not having time is absolute BS and we've got to start dealing with it. You see, we have to stop this redundant, lazy thinking that so many managers have. And we've got to focus in on that organizations probably don't have a conflict issue, they have a coexistent issue, or more specifically, a poor communication issue. If you want a healthy culture, happy employees, you've got to ensure that great conversations are happening, even if they are a little tough. So we're going to stop all this passive aggressive behavior, this coexistence, this avoidance, and start to get back to what really creates great conversations. And that leads to these great relationships. Anyway, we'll be right back and we're going to get into this whole idea of great conversations with Michael Bungay-Stanier. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with him after the break. All right, everybody, just welcome back to the Culture Hacker Podcast. I'm very excited right now. Uh, I've got a gentleman, Michael Bengay Stanier. Uh, this guy's just awesome. Best-selling author. He's the founder of Box of Crayons. And today we're going to talk about his latest book, which is about the coaching habit. Michael, how are you doing today, mate? 
I am awesome. It's always a good day when you're bonding with a fellow Antipodean, so it's only up from here. Well, listen, let's get right into this because this is awesome. Love the book, and I think you've got a really powerful message uh, for our audience today. But look, before we get into the book, give us a little bit. What, what's your background? How did you become this sort of best-selling author and this coaching guru, as it were? <laughs> That's a fine question. Sometimes I sit there and go, how did, I, how did this all happen? And you know that saying, inspiration is when you're past suddenly makes sense. So look, I was Australian, studied a law degree, an English degree in Australia, had the good luck to become a Rhodes Scholar, headed off to England to study at Oxford, and honestly, two good things happened there. The first is, I didn't become a lawyer. So it pulled me <laughs> off that path, which would have been, honestly, miserable. I'd have been a terrible lawyer. I mean, I actually finished my law school being sued by one of my own law lecturers, which was probably all the, all the clues I needed that I shouldn't pursue that as a career. And I met my Canadian wife, while I was there. We've been married 25 years now. So that set off a few wheels. I didn't head back to Australia. I finally got out of university and I joined an innovation and creativity company. So I actually spent the first five or six years of my life inventing stuff, you know, trying to understand a brand and then going, here's the product or here's the service that is the next step for you. And what was cool about this, and this is a great connection to this whole culture piece, is that in many ways they were a kind of fast company company before that had even been invented. This is in the early 90s. And the two guys who started it from Unilever basically went, look, whatever standard business operating practices are, we need to do things differently. And, you know, there were, there were good things, there were bad things about that whole experience, but they really made clear to me just what the power of having a... a focused, values-based culture was, is my first experience. And it really means that it's influenced all my work since then because so much of what I do is about trying to serve that bigger goal of how do we create organizations and companies that have cultures that serve the business and serve the people. So congratulations. It sounds like you've made a couple of good decisions. So, you know, tell me, I, I love these early experiences that have started to kind of resonate with you about the idea that culture is critical. Because let's face it, it's taken a while for a lot of people to come to that place and space. So, right. so what was happening within in this organization so early where things like values and really being driven by how you do business was so critical? Well, a couple of things were going on, some internal, some externally focused. So internally, what they did a lot of thinking about is not just what they'd like to be, but if they were a company around innovation, how do they live their brand so that the whole experience of working with us or working internally felt like an innovation organization. So they really got, you know, what Simon Sinek was, they were really clear on their why really early. And that, that experience kind of radiated out through the other organizations uh, or through the experience of working with us. The other challenge, though, was this. We were really good at coming up with ideas and solutions and products for our clients. But whenever we tried to kind of launch them, more often than not, those products would just go and die somewhere in a corporate machine. And it was actually the catalyst of that going, why is this not working? Why do we come up with good ideas, but we can't get them to life? That moved me from working for that innovation company to a change management company. So now I was just fully engaged in how do cultures work? How do things live? How do things die within organizations? 
because now it's like, so I was involved in mergers and acquisitions and kind of senior leadership stuff going, how are we trying to shape the company? So I actually moved from being focused on inventing stuff to trying to be actually much more focused on the culture. So this is something I, was, I wanted to get in with you a little later on, but it just seems to fit here. You know, you're talking about the, the, these change management elements, sort of this change of culture. I know in your book, habits is such an important sort of idea and role for you. So how does this idea of habits play into change and what's happening in culture today? Why is it so critical for you? Well, I, I mean, actually, I heard somebody say this other day, and it was the aha moment for me, so maybe it's useful for the folks listening in, which is when it comes down to it, what is a corporate culture but a collection of habits? You know, it is a culture is, I think, an unconscious way of how we react and how we make decisions. I mean, you may, I'm sure you know the Ed Shine model of what a culture is. You've got those three levels. Mm-hmm. On the top level, the artifacts, the stuff you notice around you. On the second level, the, the, artif- the espoused values, what we talk about is what matters. And then at that deepest level, that kind of foundational level, how we, the unconscious assumptions, how we actually act. And when you've got all three of those things in alignment, you've got a really strong culture. But if some of them are out of sync, and typically it's the first two out of sync with the third, then it's not nearly as strong a culture. And really what we're talking about is if the artifacts and the espoused values are the, what we aspire to be as a culture, the habits, if they're in alignment with those two things, create a really powerful culture. So if you want to evolve a culture, if you want to change a culture, what it comes down to is you need to change the habits of the people who work there so they do things differently, not just some of the time, but all of the time. You know, what you're talking about is so important. What I find with a lot of organizations is they've got their values sitting there, but they haven't taken the next step. They haven't defined what those habits are. And therefore, you've got these values that is really kind of a lot of philosophical sort of fluff because the habits, which I think are observable, measurable, they're really tangible things because they haven't been defined it's very hard to work out if someone's actually culturally aligned yeah so you've got the 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 worst value which is the you know the lamination by death you know or death by lamination i should say you know we've we've, some somebody's come up with these abstract values they involve things like integrity and teamwork or whatever kind of apple pie and motherhood statements they get laminated they get slapped on the wall that's that's failure the next level down is you go, so if those are the values, what are the behaviors that reflect those values? You know, and I think smart organizations don't just do generic values, but actually allow different parts of an organization to create their own set of behaviors that are in alignment with the values that are appropriate to the different parts of the organization. But I think what's often that missing piece is going, if these are the behaviors we expect from you, what are the habits that will drive the values that will be in alignment, uh, that will, what are the habits that drive the behaviors that will be in alignment with the values that will give us the culture that we're looking for? So right on. So I guess that, let's jump right into that because I guess this is where the coaching piece starts to come in now. Because of course, right. if you're going to change or you're going to drive habits, somebody's got to be doing the coaching role. So tell me, what, what do you think's missing out there? Why, why did you focus in on this coaching habit to be what I would say is really the core of what leadership looks like for you. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, you can hear from my stories. I've got a pretty broad experience and a whole bunch of things that you could call leadership or culture or change management. And it's all fascinating stuff. 
But what we chose as a company at Box of Crayons is to really say, if we could pick one thing to focus on that we thought would make the most difference, what would it be? And we put our chips, we put our money onto the coaching piece. Because we just think that coaching is just one of those powerful leadership behaviors that can drive culture, drive focus, drive engagement. It's really one of those things that really can have a, a huge impact, what Tim Ferriss would call the domino effect. It's like the first domino that sets off a range of different things. So for us, we're like, okay, let's focus on coaching. And the other reason I focused on it is because, honestly, the way coaching is taught in most organizations drives me crazy. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, training in general drives me crazy because it's normally pretty awful. But coaching in particular, I see these over-elaborate, over-theoretical, kind of slightly adapted from life coaching training sessions, and I would see absolutely no stickiness when people walked out the room. Yep. And what I thought was so important was to actually start with the reality of a busy manager's life. And a busy manager has got a couple of things going on for her. The first is she's saying, honestly, I'm so busy at the moment. I'm so overwhelmed. I have no time for this coaching stuff, whatever that might be. Honestly, have you seen my schedule? What, how am I going to add something on top of that? The second thing is that there's a certain degree of going, honestly, I don't want to be a coach. That's not something. I'm just trying to be a good manager. I'm trying to be a good leader. I'm trying to do my job well. This whole coaching thing, that's really not for me. And so for me, Shane, what I'm trying to get people to do is say two things. The first is we're not turning into coaches. We want you to just be more coach-like. That's a kind of liberating insight for some folks. The other key thing for us is this. Coaching is simple, and if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time for coaching. So that's kind of become the, the, the focus of our revolutionary approach to coaching for busy managers. I, I love it. And now, so, you know, if I go into and you start to read the book, the one thing that stands out is with your coaching model philosophy is it's based around these seven questions. So talk to me a little bit. Why is asking questions so important for managers? And quite honestly, why has it become so difficult? <laughs> well, why it's become so difficult, that's great. I mean, Here's why it's so important. You know, part of your job as a manager and a leader is to give your people that you're managing and leading the best chance of success. You want them to be increase their capability, increase their impact, increase their autonomy. I mean, you know, Dan Pink in his wonderful book Drive says, look, for people to be motivated, they need three things. They need meaning. They need uh, – uh, no, sorry, they need mastery. They need purpose. And they need autonomy. And here's the thing, telling somebody what to do gives them none of that. Mm -hmm. Asking a question, a good question, so not a fake question like, have you thought of, that's just advice with a question mark attached on the end, <laughs> but a good question that actually makes them stop, think, get a new insight about themselves, a new insight about the situation around them, that's what's driving mastery and autonomy and purpose. That's what's driving motivation and engagement and success. But here's the thing, asking questions is hard to do. Why is it hard to do? Well, on one hand, everybody has just spent a career being rewarded for knowing stuff. So it's a fine, it's a fine trigger reaction now, which is like when somebody starts talking, after about 10 seconds, you're like, I've stopped listening. I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. So it's just a deeply ingrained habit. The second thing, and this is more subtle, is... When you're asking questions, you're actually empowering the other person. That all sounds good, but here's the thing about empowerment. Empowerment means giving up power, 
for, so the other person can have it. So what that boils down to, Shane, is this. When I'm asking questions, it's a less comfortable place for me to stand than when I'm telling somebody what to do. When I'm telling them what to do, I'm like, I'm in control, I'm a smart person, I have status, I know where this conversation's going. It's like I'm feeling good. My, I mean, my advice may not be very good at all, but I feel pretty good about it. Yep. However, if I ask a question, as soon as I ask the question, there's this moment of ambiguity. Was that a good question? What are they going to say? What if they come up with some crazy answer that I don't know how to respond to? What if they get the answer wrong? What if it wasn't the right question in the first place? But what you're doing is you're stepping into that place of, if you like, servant leadership, that place of uncertainty in service of the people you're working with. And in the end, service of yourself, because with a good question, with a more coach-like approach, you actually get to work less hard but have more impact in the work that you do. Love it. And as I said, I would suggest even in addition to empowering people, you're actually enabling them because I think that's yeah, a piece that, that people forget about is that it's a manager's responsibility to enable their people, whether it's through the idea of servant leadership, developing them, growing them. That's a responsibility. And the reality is we've got a whole millennial workforce that's demanding it, but it is still lacking in our workplace today. So this idea absolutely. of questions is absolutely critical. But the difficulty that it's created, how do you start that conversation with a manager who is sitting there today going, I just don't have the time for questions. It's just, you know, it's so much easier for me just to give answers and to give direction. Yeah. You know, it's hard. And um, one of the things that definitely doesn't work is somebody flipping a PowerPoint slide up on the wall saying, let me show you the statistics of why coaching is awesome and why managers who coach are happier and smarter and whatever it might be. That doesn't persuade anybody. You've really got to help people kind of experience the, why would I really benefit from this and really feel that? And one of the things that we do, this will take just a couple of minutes to explain, is we take people into what's known as the drama triangle. Now, look, the drama triangle has its roots in something called transactional analysis. It's a slightly dated theoretical model that gives us things like adult-to-adult -adult relationships and parent-child relationships. They don't really work when you're talking about organizations in, in terms of the right language. But the drama triangle, which is a version of this, adapted from it, says, look, when things get dysfunctional, and they always get dysfunctional, three different roles play out. There's the rescuer. There's the victim and there's the persecutor. So victim, persecutor, rescuer. And of course, immediately everybody knows what we're talking about. You know what somebody who plays the victim role looks like and sounds like. You know what somebody who plays the persecutor role looks like and sounds like. And the truth is all three of these roles, victim, persecutor, rescuer, they're all equally dysfunctional. I mean, rescuer sounds a bit better, but be, be clear, it's as equally dysfunctional as the other roles. And we play all three of these roles all the time. We bounce around them. You know, we, we react, we get sucked into the drama triangle by something, and before we know it, we're bouncing from one thing to the other. But the truth is we do tend to have one role that we tend to play most often, a default role for all of us. And when we teach this in our program, Shane, we get people standing all around the drama triangle. We've laid it out on the floor for them. And at a certain point, we'll say, go and stand by the role that you think you play most often. So I'll ask the people listening in on the podcast, you know, victim, persecutor, rescuer, what do you think the role is that you play most often? 
And here's what happens in the, in the classroom. 90 to 95% of people charge towards the rescuer role. <laughs> and there's always this moment of laughter where everyone looks around and goes, oh my God, we're all rescuers apparently. And then you ask the question, so how's that working for you? And they say, honestly, it's not working at all. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I'm busy doing everybody else's work for them. I've just realized that rescuers actually create victims. Rescuers actually create persecutors. So actually now this dysfunction I see is actually being caused by my management style. Even though I'm trying to do it with the best of intentions to be helpful, what I'm suddenly seeing is this helpfulness this leap in, I'll fix it, I'll tell you what to do, I'll give you the answer, I'll give you the solution, is actually not working so well. So when you say to people, hey, would it be helpful if I could get you out of the drama triangle? They say, absolutely, how do I do that? If you say to people, would you like to spend some more time coaching? They're like, yeah, not really, I'm just trying to get stuff done. But if you say, can I get you out of the drama triangle? They're like, yeah, show me how to do that. And one of the great things about coaching and being more coach-like is it pulls you out of the drama triangle. Well, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that want to get out of that drama triangle. So exactly. you, you, you talk in the book about these seven questions. Uh, so how did you yeah. come up with these questions? I mean, where was the thought process and where do you think is – what do you think that most critical moment in your process and model is, uh, the one that really just kind of starts to shift the habit meaningfully? Yeah. Well, in terms of where the questions came from, you know, I did my coach training about 15 or 16 years ago. And what I quickly noticed is that the people who were teaching us, who were master coaches for me, what they did is they had great questions at their disposal. I mean, the models were okay, but what really seemed to, to, to make a coaching conversation sing or not sing was the quality of the, converse, of the questions. So I started collecting questions. I just was, you know, I was so keen. I'm going to find the great questions. And when it came to write this book, you know, I had, I had literally hundreds of questions to draw upon. And actually, the very first version of this book, I'm, it was like, here are the 179 questions <laughs> you could use as a manager. And I wrote that book, and it was a terrible book. Yeah. <laughs> it was just too much. It was too confusing. It's too boring. And so I had to scrap that. And so I stripped it back. I got this insight that I was like, I'm going to write the shortest book I can that's the most useful for people. So I was like, okay, so what's the magic number? And I tried nine, and I tried four, and I tried five. And actually, in the end, I landed on seven, just in part because seven's you know, got a slight magic to it, I think. But in part because I was like, these are the seven questions that kind of span all sorts of uses that busy managers and busy leaders could come up with. So each question has its place. But if you were to ask me what the, the one question was that people might take away right now from this conversation, I'd say it would be the second question in the book. We call it the best coaching question in the world. And it's a very simple question. It's, it's got three words. Its acronym is AWE, so it's literally awesome. And the question is, and what else? And what else? Now, I have to tell you, Shane, whenever I do this, <laughs> I normally do it in front of a large crowd, and I go, here it is, the best coaching question in the world. And what else? There's this wave of anti-climax that comes from the group because they're like, oh, man, I, thought you, I, I, I wanted something more than that. Yep. But the reason and what else is so powerful and such a foundational great question for people to start with and, and practice is that it, it comes with the insight that the first answer somebody gives you is never their only answer and it's really their best answer. 
There's always more there. But because we're so primed to leap into action, to move to advice, to move to solutions, we often get seduced by the first answer, and that's not always the best answer to go with. The second piece is this. When you ask and what else, you're staying curious just a little bit longer. And the behavior change that's behind the book and behind the programs effectively boils down to this. How do you stay curious just a little bit longer? How do you move to action and advice just a little bit slower? And that's the foundational change of behavior. Sounds easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And what else is a great place to start to begin that move? You know, I love the idea you've got is curiosity. I've sort of talked about curiosity for years that I think it's one of the most uh, core elements that great leaders have is that they're always curious. And when you're always curious, you're willing to engage others. You ask questions as as you've alluded to. You're always interested in learning. And, And for me, when 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 managers stop being curious and they kind of think they know it all and they kind of have created that style they can't lead and because they can't lead they can't inspire others to do really really great things so i love the fact that you're really honing in on curiosity because i think we don't talk about it enough as one of the core elements of what great leaders possess yeah exactly because with curiosity um comes that slightly uncomfortable piece going I might not know everything after all. Now, I don't know about you, Shane, but honestly, as I get older, it occurs to me that I know less and less. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, like. but exactly. But you know what? As you get older, I think the key is you get comfortable with the idea that you know less and less. Right. And I think when, right. you, when that shift happens, you become a better leader of people because of all the things of engagement and all the things that we, we hear thrown around every day. But it really does start with that very core ideal of what le- great leaders do. So love that curiosity. I want to jump to another yeah. piece uh, element of the book that I, I just thought was really cool. And I have to ask you about it. Um, this idea that managers need to get comfortable with silence. So here we are, yeah. we've been talking about this idea of questions, but now you're telling them to kind of like shut up for a second what's that all about and again talk about something that's difficult for so many people to do so where did that come from and why do you think it's so critical in your coaching model yeah you know it is hard to sit in silence it just is where nobody's nobody's that comfortable doing it and what's interesting is to note how quickly so many of us become discombobulated by silence. So you ask a question and then you wait and you've waited, let's say one and a half seconds. And now you're in that place of ambiguity we were talking about before, which is like, oh my God, we're a second and a half into this and they haven't come up with an answer. What's wrong? Was this a bad question? Do they know what they're talking about? Um, Should I fill the space? Should I make them feel more comfortable? Should I make myself feel more comfortable? And we we kind of rush in and, and spoil the moment. But here's what's kind of ironic in some ways, which is when you ask a great question, often you create silence because when you ask a great question, they won't have the answer ready to go. You're actually forcing them to stop, to think, to create the new neural pathways to really figure out what, you, what you've just asked them to solve. So when you ask a question and there's that silence, rather than panicking, that's the time when you sit back and you sort of like inwardly fist pump and congratulate yourself for asking a question that's truly provocative and making them think. And there's just another piece involved in this, Shane. And um, if you've read the book uh, Quiet by Susan, oh, I've forgotten her surname, 
but it was a, it was a, a smash hit, and it really kind of put the spotlight on the experience of the introvert. One of the things that I know is that there are people in this world that need time to process an answer internally before they're willing to speak it. Now, me, and I'm going to guess you too, Shane, we're kind of traditionally extroverts, at least the type of extrovert that when you ask me a question, I just start talking. I mean, you know, you ask me a question, I go, Shane, great question. There are three things I want to say about that question. And honestly, I'm about to discover what those three things are as I start talking about them, because I have no idea what the three things are. Well, that's what makes the there podcast so good, because if we were all being quiet, <laughs> yeah. I don't think our listeners would be uh, too excited. But quiet, I, I think it's Susan Kane who you're thinking of, because uh, very you. powerful. Yeah. The, the introverts, they go, okay, that's a good question. I'm going to figure out the answer, and now I'm going to tell you it. So by remaining silent, you're actually showing them some respect and giving them the space they need to process the question that you've asked them. You know what, as I said, and it, it kind of brings us always back because, you know, the book's called The Coaching Habit and it says, say less, ask more. So again, we've talked about this idea of silence. We've talked about this element to ask great questions. But I think the last part of the title is so provocative because it's about changing the way that you lead forever. And right. as our listeners are out there and they're going, well, this is just about coaching. I think it, it, what you've come up with here is that coaching in some ways is about teaching a set of habits that truly are going to impact your leadership style and the way that you inspire other people. And I think it's this, this broader conversation of leadership and how it impacts culture, which is the real secret of this book. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love that we're having this conversation in the context of culture because one of the things that I'm trying to have conversations with the people with whom we work at Box of Crayons is always to think about playing the bigger game. Because it's one thing to say, hey, Michael, I love your thing about coaching. Let's do some coach training for my people. And I'm like, that's good. But what's better is to go, what are you trying to change in your organization? What's the shift? What are you evolving to? What's the culture you aspire to? And then that coaching and this new way of leadership be a small part of that bigger game. So for me, I'm really grateful that you've managed to provide the context to kind of frame how coaching can serve that bigger cultural game. Well, yeah, and as I said, I think if you're not focusing on culture here at Culture Hacker, we, we, we dedicate uh, sort of our own chapter, our own elements to this coaching element. And, and, and as I said, it really is the one piece that we say leaders must come to be comfortable with. And we just love the fact that we've kind of connected with you and that, that your coaching habit has really provided us internally as well, this really nice sort of game plan to be better leaders, but more importantly, be better business people and actually start to shift our own organization. And as I said, I'm sure you've uh, had a lot of success out there as you've gone into some of these organizations to do that. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate you saying that. Well, as I said, it kind of comes full circle because, as I said, you, you said you went into this whole change, sort of organizational change element so early in your career. Uh, you've never really uh, left it, I would say. Well, you're right. You know, it's trying to figure out. I mean, this is the thing with, with culture and change in general. When you, when you step up to that challenge, there's a thousand things you could do, a thousand levers you could pull. And it's hard. I mean, change management fails more often than not. So for you to be successful, it takes a degree of wisdom and it takes a degree of humility and it takes a degree of luck. Um, but one of the things that we found really consistent is going, look, culture change is important, 
But if culture in the end becomes a collection of the habits, how we do things around here, let's help people understand the power of habits. Let's see if we can inculcate curiosity as one of those cure habits. Let's give people seven great questions and then Culture, good culture that are going to begin to emerge from that. Listen, Michael, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen out there, it's Michael Bungay-Stania. Again, Box of Crayons. Uh, head on to his website, boxofcrayons.biz, B-I-Z. Check out Michael. Uh, get onto Amazon. Get a copy of the book. I'm telling you, it's simple, easy reading. It's a east-to-west plane flight, as I found out, so the timing is fantastic. Michael, listen, <laughs> you're doing some great work out there. Uh, thank you for everything you've done, and thanks for being part of Culture Hacker today. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shane. All right. Again, everybody, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Check him out. Doing some great stuff. So I'm really excited right now to have on the Culture Hacker podcast. Uh, we've got Mark Sawyer, CEO and founder of Bonfire. Mark, how are we doing today? Good, thanks. How about you? Good. Listen, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to uh, talk to you guys because I think you're doing some really cool stuff uh, in the culture space. Um, so give us a little bit of background on that. What did you see happening out there in the world uh, that led you to create this really cool platform? Oh, sure. Well, um, you know, if at the end of the day, when you think about what makes a highly engaged employee, a huge part of that is um, the relationships that they have in the workplace, both with their coworkers as well as with the company they work for. And, you know, for, for many years now, um, companies have been using communications technologies, um, you know, of course, as a way to help employees perform their work. Um, but the big marketplace opportunity we've, we've, we're, we're capturing is um, the idea that really to effectively build relationships and to build culture and engagement, um, digi- a separate and dedicated digital communication platform is required, um, separate from the one you use to actually perform your job function. So pretty cool. So you've got this idea of relationships. Uh, so tell me, uh, what did you see out there in the market? Why why create this separate platform? Was there something missing? Did you see that these relationships via these other platforms just weren't working or not being successful? What kind of sparked this? Because you're kind of adding this additional layer in there. Obviously, there's some great benefits, but what did you see in the market? Well, I guess, you know, I don't think you have to look very far. Um, you know, if you look at any, um, you know, if you, any, any company, if they were to take a look at their, you know, current internal um, enterprise communications technology and they just look at how employees are using it, right? These, uh, the hallmarks of these tools are, are desktop-centric communication, um, primarily transactional instant messaging, right? You know, where's the file? Um, and, you know, they're, they're, these systems are incredibly robust. They offer, um, you know, a great deal of, of capabilities that are all very important. Um, but this also creates a bit of complexity and in the end, um, you know, in some cases, a very cumbersome and challenging user experience. Um, and then, you know, you look on the other side about how how are human beings in their personal lives using digital communication to build and maintain relationships? You look at tools like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and so on and so forth, and you have an altogether very different, um, you know, uh, set of criteria and characteristics. You have tools that are characterized primarily by mobile-centric use. Um, you know, much higher percentage of content is going to be rich media-based, and the type of content that people are sharing and, and how they're using it is much more curated. It's much more deliberate um, when you're posting a photo to Instagram, right, um, as opposed to, you know, what you're using a, a work-based tool for. And so, 
you know, that, that really sort of, um, for my business partner, Chris and I, that, that sort of really sparked, um, you know, this, this idea that at the end of the day, in, in the, if, if building culture and building an engaged workforce um, is a strategic priority for your business, companies must leverage digital communication technologies to do that. And the digital communication tools that they have in place that they're currently trying to use um, are not well suited to meet those needs. You know, I mean, you look at you look you look at how companies are already investing in building engagement and building culture, right? I mean, you know, you have company meetings and events, you have diversity and inclusion programs, you have you know professional development, um, you have employee recognition, right? I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, and and we've designed a communications product, a communications technology that has a feature set that is specifically designed to support um, you know those areas of investment in companies as opposed to workflow management and task performance. Very, very cool and very important. So, what do you think about the the impact of the millennials then? Because again, I think they they are driving so much um, you know coming on board that they are going to be the largest consumer base, and of course that transfers directly into the workplace. Do you see that your platform, this communication platform, is really speaking to them? And are you seeing that that, that is a, obviously a group that is specifically targeted, knowing their nuances for communication being more technically driven? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, I would I take a little bit more of a, of a macro view and I just look at, I mean, for example, um, you know, the average U.S. adult is looking at their phone 110 times a day. Um, you know, they carry almost three, you know, unique devices and they spend 23 hours a week texting. That was according to a, a recent Gallup poll. Um, you know, you have, as you point out, you have 60% of millennials saying they would quit their job if their boss prevented them from doing personal tasks on their phone at work. Um, and then you finally have, I think, uh, you know, a very, another very important trend, which is remote workers, right? 43% of the U.S. workforce is expected, is expected to be working from home by 2016. So, you know, millennials, I just sort of, I view as really being on the, the bleeding edge or, you know, the leading edge of, of these trends. But these trends are only going in one direction, right? And, and, that, and that direction is a mobile-centric um, view upon which we want to consume and, and create and share uh, content with others, um, particularly in terms of how we build relationships. And so um, millennials, absolutely a part of it. But, you know, I think it's, it's about the, the, you know, the, where the workforce is going in general. So perfect. So if we haven't already worked out, we've got a mobile-centric platform that really uh, promotes communication and relationships in the workplace. So take us a little deeper. What, what is this platform? What is your technology allowing companies to do? Sure. Um, and and uh, in terms of an example or talking about some of the features? Yeah, just give us some of the features and benefits and then yeah, absolutely. We want to hear uh, about uh, how it's working out there. Sure. Okay. Um, no problem. So, you know, I guess, you know, Bonfire really starts with um, an immediately familiar, um, very uh, delightful user experience for real-time chat, photo, and video sharing. Um, and I think this is one of the most important distinctions right off the bat, um, being that we've we've never had to train a single person on how to use the you know the basic communication components of Bonfire. It's been designed um, you know with uh, with with the idea that uh, we're using the same visual cues and and you know interface that you're already accustomed to using uh, you know texting and Facebook and whatnot in your, in your personal life. Um, and, you know, this combined with the level of support we provide, our customers are seeing about an average 70% adoption amongst employees and 45% of people in a bonfire are posting content. So there's, there's a, just a right – off, right off the bat, I think one of the important distinctions is just the overall 
utilization and adoption. Um, then getting more specifically, as I, as I alluded to earlier, you know, there's, there's, I would say, five or six key areas where we have specific features um, that, that are designed to support uh, internal communications, um, collaboration, culture, uh, employee recognition, and, and company meetings and events. Um, so to give you some, some quick examples, um, you know, uh, talking about internal communications, I mean, I'm guessing you would agree with this. I mean, how many, you know, it's amazing to me how many companies that uh, I speak with um, lament that they spend all this time and money on their internal communications efforts, their newsletter, you know, things they post on their intranet, um, and are, are dismayed at how few people are reading it or, you know, this feeling of people feeling that they're uh, – they're not well informed about what's going on at the company. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, a- you're right on. I mean, let's talk that communication piece because I, I talk about it a lot. You, th- these companies out there today are using these archaic forms of communication. I mean, the the, the annual meetings, the, the the newsletters and all of this, and it's just not hitting their target market, which, of course, is their staff base. So, you know, it, it's really an important element that I think today – companies have to challenge their traditional communication uh, space. Because again, there's a lot of money still being spent as you alluded to, but man, you talk and you see the survey results out there and you know companies go, well, we communicate so much. Why do they say they're not updated? It's because we're not communicating in the right space. Right, and, and I think that begins with the medium. And you know, going back to those trends we mentioned earlier, um, if you, you know, it, it's not to say that sending internal communications out through email or putting it on your internet is a bad thing, but if you really want to drive consumption and awareness of that information, it has to be delivered to people's mobile phones because that is what they're already – I mean, that is the inevitable trend we, re- we referenced earlier. And I think the other thing that, that so Bonfire right is, is is enabling real-time mobile-centric delivery of this information and content. I mean, we do have a web app as well, but um, but the mobile centrism is is key. The other big thing is the data side because um, every you know similar to you know if you're using email and these other sort of archaic methods, um, chances are you really don't have great visibility into you know, which things are people reading, what time are people reading them at, who's read your content and who hasn't. And we bring all of that information to the fore um, to, to empower our customers to actually optimize their internal communications efforts over time based on data. So this is cool. So give me some examples of the type of data. I, I talk to a lot of those HR executives out there. Every one of them talks about the importance of data, the importance of data. But when you dig deeper, they just don't have it. So give me some examples. What sort of data and maybe some real-life examples of what you're giving them that's having an impact culturally. Sure, um, and you know, I, th- I think one of the you know one of the the funny um, data points or uh, you know is just is just every company will say that their most important asset is their people, um, and yet most companies are only asking their people what they think. Um, Every six months or once a year, yeah. um, you know, with those semi-annual engagement surveys, which, are, which again, I mean, those those are important, um, but they're a snapshot in time. And so, you know, to start the answer to the question, I would say one of our most popular features is our pop survey tool, um, where you know, instead of you know, to complement what might be a more robust, you know, fifty or hundred question survey, um, you can have uh, you can in seconds create a single question, multiple choice, or free text response survey that gets delivered in real time and answered in real time by every person in the bonfire. Um, so it's just a very sort of lightweight way to collect feedback in real time. So that, you know, that, that, that's, I think, powerful information off the bat. In terms of general data that Bonfire is providing to its customers, I'd, I'd sort of describe it in, in, or put it in two buckets. 
You've got the first, which is, um, you know, the sort of overall utilization. Um, and that's looking at what percentage of your target audience has, you know, joined the bonfire, what percentage of those people are actually posting content, um, what time are people consuming and posting content most frequently, what are the big topics of discussion, um, things of that nature. Um, and we're, we're, you know, and, and then the, sec- the second bucket would be looking at, um, and this is a, a deeper analysis done over a much longer period of time, um, but looking at, for example, the words that people are posting in, in a bonfire or across a series of bonfires to determine sentiment. Um, looking at, as I mentioned, topics of discussion and conversation, um, identifying personas within the organization. Uh, for example, you know, an influencer is somebody who, when they post content in a bonfire, a lot of people comment and interact with. Or you could have a cheerleader who is interacting and commenting on other people's stuff a lot. Um, so there, you know, the, and, and in the end, right, we're able to segment all of this information and data by bonfire uh, title or type, uh, job, you know, uh, role in the company, where you work, uh, any demographic information we have access to. And in, and in turn, we, we are then correlating this information and this data to turnover, to performance, to ultimately engagement. Um, and, th- and that's sort of more of the, the longitudinal view of, of where, where we're taking our data. So this is going to be, again, exciting news for those HR executives, managers out there that uh, are looking for the data. So give me some examples of how this is working in the real world. Uh, have you got a couple of business cases or uh, you know examples of companies that are really uh, changing and really evolving in terms of their culture with your product and uh, uh, with them? Oh, sure. Um, you know, there's there's uh, a number of examples on our website that folks can go check out. Um, we just put up a, a case study with some of our work with Southwest Airlines. But, um, you know, the example that – or my, my favorite example that comes to mind is actually some work we did with uh, Commerce Bank recently. Um, you know, I remember, um, you know, when, when we started working with them, they were – you know, uh, they, they caution, you know, hey, uh, you know, we're a bank. We don't think we're that cool. Uh, you know, we're, we're not we're not expecting a huge amount of participation on this. Don't don't get your hopes up. And what they were using Bonfire for was to initially was to support their 150th anniversary. Right. So so this represent, you know, this was an investment they were already making. It's a big moment for everybody in the company to celebrate history, to come together around the, the company's culture and core values and whatnot. Um, and, and Bonfire created a digital space where, you know, all 5,000 of these employees from across the country were able to um, celebrate and share in this together despite, you know, being located all over the place. And the results, um, you know, to, their, to everybody's, you know, delight and surprise, uh, literally in two weeks we had um, almost 35% of the entire company join the Bonfire Fifty percent of those people had actually posted photos and participated in the bonfire, um, and that then led to organizational, organization-wide use of the product. And they're now, um, you know, they're using Bonfire um, as a as a daily communication tool with their company to support recognition, um, you know, to, to and, and to support the great culture they have at Commerce. You know, I love that example. You know, our whole idea of culture hackers don't make the idea of change the the, the front sort of uh, page ad or banner that you really yeah. want to promote out. There, what you want to do is show benefit, or as you've just given us a fantastic example, rally around something that's already important, already exciting, and energetic, 
and introduce something. And based on what you just said, that was actually the catalyst for people starting to regularly use your software, correct? Yep, that's correct. You know, and that's exactly what we want to talk about with this culture hacker mentality. You're able to put software like Bonfire into your organization and methodically just placing and manipulating that mechanism, you've started to have some really great success. Absolutely. Well, listen, Mark, this is fantastic. You know, and again, I'm very excited. For those of you that are listening out there, it's Bonfire, B-O-N-F-Y-R-E. Uh, again, we've got Mark Sawyer here, CEO and founder on the podcast. Please go ahead, check it out. Mark, what's the best way for someone to get hold of you? Well, they can just go to our website or shoot me an email, uh, Mark, M-A-R-K, at Bonfire app. That's B-O-N-F-Y-R-E, A-P-P. Perfect. Listen, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. You guys are doing some awesome stuff out there, and hopefully our listeners will get on board and really pay attention to this idea of communication and how it can really make a difference in your culture. Mark, thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I just want to thank Mark for giving us some great insights today and of course Michael earlier. Uh, hopefully you found some great tips. And I want to give you one more. Uh, we've been talking about this whole idea of effective communication and I want to make sure we understand it's not just about sending messages, it's about listening as well. We all know it's important, yet I'm seeing more and more managers picking up this really bad habit when it comes to listening to their staff. Leaving their staff feeling unimportant, not valued and disrespective. What is that bad habit? I'm talking about this idea of multi tasking on your computer and smartphone while listening to your staff. Have some manners. Stop being so attached to the phones and the computers when it comes that you can't stop to listen, and I mean truly listen, listening empathetically to understand where your people are coming from. I'm going to tell you now that if you don't start putting down your cell phones, start putting away your computers when you talk and listen to your staff, you're going to be in trouble. It comes down to respect, ladies and gentlemen. And let's face it, when it comes to our staff and the culture and the attitude that they have, listening to them is one of the most important things we do. All right, so uh, thanks very much for checking in today. Thanks again to Michael and Mark who uh, gave us some great insights. And of course, thank you for listening in to a podcast. Hopefully you tune back in again. Thanks very much. My name is Shane Green. Check out my book that's out there, Culture Hacker. Uh, I'm excited to share more and more tips about how to reprogram your employee experience for great company culture. So check it out. I appreciate it. And we'll talk again soon. Cheers. <music>